Well, today uh, there's no uh, skit or drama or video or anything kind of special song or anything like that. Um, I did just want to take just a moment uh, for us just to to pray together. And, uh, and one thing that you, if you just keep in mind while we take a moment to pray, is uh, there's a lot of people that uh, again the whole economy thing is affecting people differently. There's certain job markets and areas sectors of the work field where people are not affected at all and then there's other places where people are really getting hit hard and I keep running into people in our church that are losing their jobs or uh, business is slacked off and things are really tough and pinched right now so uh, let's, let's just uh, bring some of those people to mind and uh, pray for them pray for this church and the people within it Heavenly Father we, uh, we trust you and there's moments when uh, things look a little scary to us. We don't know what's going to happen next. Or maybe it's a, a job or a bill or a house or a car that won't work. It's broken down. And all those things uh, are kind of those things that we need in life just to, to get through it. And Lord, though we're uh, not of this world, we're, we're living in it. And uh, Father, you know that. You said that. You take care of us. Uh, you take care of the birds. Take care of the flowers. And, uh, but Lord, you, you told us that you want us to seek you first. And so Lord, maybe some of these things are occurring because you, you just want to get our attention. That we'd turn our eyes upon you and stop chasing after things in the world. But to take a moment to chase after you. And Lord, I, I pray that in that moment, Lord, you would do more than just capture our attention. Father, that you'd move to the center of our heart, Lord, and that we wouldn't keep you on the periphery of our lives, but in the middle of our lives, and Lord, that you would, um, again, show us how to, to seek you and your kingdom first, and not just the things we want. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, I'm always so glad to be talking about this, this subject. We've been looking at Matthew 5, 6, and 7 uh, the past few weeks, which contains what we, we call today the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I love talking about it right now, this time of season, especially what's going on in our country. While there's all the political yammering going on for the left and for the right, and everybody's talking about their candidate, and there's moments where I just go, man, I'm so tired of talking about the kingdom of this world. I just want to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And uh, Sermon on the Mount was spoken to, to followers of Christ, and it was about his kingdom. And uh, I get excited about that. And uh, so, uh, for a little relief, uh, we're going to talk about a different kingdom. Uh, and I'm so glad to do that today. Um, we looked at the first two sections of uh, Jesus' sermon, and which is sort of a manifesto for, Christ, for the Christ follower, but it's, it's more than just principles, you know, follow these things, here's what we abide by. It's, it's a vision of who we are and who we're to be as Christ followers. Jesus came into the midst of the kingdoms of this world, and his purpose is to call out a people for himself, call out a people for himself from the world and form them into a kingdom. Jesus makes it clear that this kingdom is entirely different, entirely different than anything this world has ever seen or known or experienced because it is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of light. It is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. 
So the past two weeks, we've looked at what we know as uh, chapter 6 in the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus describes a living relationship with the Father. He describes living out our, our devotion with only Him as the audience, not seeking applause from anybody else, just seeking His applause. And, and then He describes living in the midst of the world without succumbing to its worries and its cares, all of which is done in the sight of the Father, who sees every action, every thought, and every motive. Now, with that overarching thought of continually living with certainty in the presence of the Father, Jesus introduces introduces a a connected thought here, begins in chapter 7. And what it means to be a Christ follower and living accountable to our Father. You know, if he sees everything, sees our hearts, knows our motives, and, and knows all, uh, there's part of that is that, that we're accountable to him. And uh, that's where chapter 7 begins. And he begins by saying, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your, in your brother's eye? And I'm, I'm, I'm losing my place here now, so I'm going to find this. Your brother's eye, and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. So some people take this and say that, and again, this is you know, probably the most quoted part of the Bible today in America. I, I think one of our presidents in the past quoted it when he was in trouble. Do not judge. Uh, and he forgot the rest of it. He didn't quote the rest of it. And he didn't quote uh, the other parts that this is contained in. But you know, some people take this and say that, well, there should be no assessing, no discerning, no judgment whatsoever. You just don't do that. But I don't think you can take it that literally or simply. Because in the same sermon, again, this is Jesus sitting down on a mountainside. All these people are listening. He's beginning a message. And then we go through 5, 6, and 7. At the end, he says he concluded his message. And everybody was like, oh, wow, he's a great teacher. And so this is one setting, one continuous thought. So in the same message where he says, do not judge or you two will be judged, he also says, don't throw your pearls to the pigs. And then he says a little later, uh, and tells us to watch out for false prophets in sheep's clothing. Which, by the way, he doesn't say sheep's, uh, wolves in shepherd's clothing. He says wolves in sheep's clothing, which is kind of interesting. Um, but shepherds count too. You've you got to watch out for them too. Uh, we're a tricky bunch. Uh, he then tells us that we will know a good tree uh, or a bad tree by its fruit. So how do you know whether you're giving your pearls to a pig or not? How do you tell if one of the sheep is really teaching something false? How do you recognize bad fruit from good fruit? How do you do that? I mean, you, you got to make some sort of assessment. You got to make some sort of discerning decision. You have to exercise good judgment, don't you? To be able to, to discern that and know that. So obviously, the Lord is not meaning that we must never arrive at conclusions and apply them. Uh, you know, and when he says, judge not, Jesus is not telling us to make assessments based on, uh, on good judgment, but he's, what he is telling us is that he's very concerned about the matter of condemning. Of condemning. Judgment that is in the final sense. And as maybe some of us would say today, 
you write somebody off. That kind of judgment. I'm going to write this person off my list. That would be the kind of thing that he's talking about. The kind of judgment is a spirit of condemnation. You know, it's, it's a self-righteous spirit. It's this feeling of superiority that, that we're all right while others are not. That's what he's looking at. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, which tells us a definition of love. Love is patient, love is kind, love is gentle, is not envy, it doesn't boast. It goes on to say that love always hopes. It always hopes. And, and it's always being ambitious for others, someone else. Where condemning, a condemning spirit is always looking for something wrong. It's always looking for the worst. And you can always hint and kind of tell that there's some part of self or selfishness that's behind it. So this is the kind of condemning judgment and, and that Jesus is talking about. And it usually shows up in, in these kind of ways. You know, it's, this judgment kind of shows up when the matter really doesn't concern us at all. You know, people get kind of harsh, talk like in, in tones that are just condemning. Uh, it, it's, it happens when we put prejudice in front of principle. And I'm not just talking about uh, racial prejudice, but all kinds of prejudice. Uh, this kind of condemning judgment puts personalities in front of principles. And because of a dislike of a person, you know, they'll attach certain motives and they'll attribute those motives to that person just because they don't like them. Uh, this is the kind of condemning judgment uh, that, that will never take the trouble to understand the circumstances and find out what's really going on. It's the kind of judgment that's never ready to exercise any kind of mercy. So there's, there's a couple of examples in the Bible of this. Uh, James and John, uh, they're going out with Jesus and they're going into a Samaritan town and they're not very well received and, and the, they're forced to leave the town. And, and James and John, they say, hey, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven on, these, on the Samaritans? Just burn them up. That would be the kind of condemning judgment that we're talking about here, all right? Uh, the Pharisee, uh, in the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector, they go to the temple, and then the Pharisee kind of, he's praying his prayer, and he's going, oh, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector over here. And that would be that kind of condemning spirit, that self-righteous thing there. Uh, and then there's the example of the, the Roman Christ followers, uh, which... Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote a letter to, uh, which is what we have in the Bibles as the book of Romans, but he wrote to them because uh, they were starting to judge each other in regards to what others were eating and drinking. You know, if somebody was drinking this, it was like, oh man, I can't believe that. And, you know, they'd write them off their list, you know. They weren't part of the club anymore. So uh, that would be the kind of thing that they're talking about, what Jesus is talking about here. So though Christ followers are, are justified, justified by faith, uh, have assurance of salvation, of heaven that's in Christ, um, you know, we're still subject to judgment here on this earth and also after this life. You know, what Jesus is saying here in the first two verses of Matthew 7 isn't simply, you know, if you don't want other people to say unkind things to you, then you shouldn't say unkind things about them. That's not all that he's saying. I mean, that's part of it. What goes around comes around, that kind of thought. But the reason G Jesus gives for not judging in this condemning way is that we not, it not only puts us in trouble, but we're producing judgment for ourselves when we do this. We're producing judgment for ourselves. And it's not only that, but we set the standard for the measurement for our own judgment. 
uh, here's kind of what I mean by this. This this is a yardstick, three feet, uh, and it's a standard of measure we use here in the states and in England. And uh, you know, Jesus when he's declaring himself, um, he's declaring that that God himself, God himself will judge us according to our own standards. And that's kind of a scary thing when you think about this. You know, you see if we go about acting like masters and authorities, he's going to say, okay. You're acting like an, uh, an, you know, some sort of master or an authority in this area. Well, I will judge you like an authority. I will judge you like you're a master. Uh, and he'll make you answerable by the claim you make. So if you claim you have exceptional knowledge, and this is your little measure of exceptional knowledge, and you're going up and measuring everybody, see if they have the same exceptional knowledge that you have, God's saying, you know what? I will measure you by your standard. Let's see how you measure up to that exceptional knowledge. Then, you know, if, you, if, you're, uh, if your claim is tolerance, and, you, and this is your tolerance stick, and you go around measuring, if everybody's tolerant, well, you know what? God says, okay, I'll measure you by the same standard. Let's see how tolerant you are, and you'll be measured by that. Same thing, if, if, you're, if your little measuring stick is, if your claim is hypocrites, you know, then the hypocrite measure will be used to you. You know, is this, okay, is this hypocrite? Well, it's going to be measured on you. How do you measure up? Are you a hypocrite? So, the, but, but the big reason, big reason that Jesus gives us for not judging in this condemning way is in verses three through five, where he describes a man with a log in his eye. And some versions will say a plank. But I, I like the log eye. You got log eye? Anyway, he's got a log in his eye, and he's trying to remove a speck in his brother's eye. And our Lord is teaching us that the the reason for not judging others is that, basically, we're incapable of judgment. We're incapable. I mean, there's a log in our eye. We can't even see what's in our brother's eye, really. And since we can't do it properly, we shouldn't try at all. So you see, if we're really concerned about righteousness and true judgment, we would deal with it in ourselves first. You know, if we're really concerned about truth, you know, if it's your, your truth stick, you would first apply that to yourself. We would judge ourselves first if we're really concerned about that. And that's, that's what needs to happen. So, you know, the eye, Jesus used an example of, of the log eye. The eye is one of the most sensitive parts of the human body. I mean, you know, if somebody... If you got something in your eye and you want somebody to help you get it out, I mean, you're, you're kind of wincing. You're, you know, if something comes at your, your face or your eye, you're going you're, you're to blink. I mean, your, your body automatically does it. It's a reaction because that's a sensitive, sensitive part of your body. And judgment is really a delicate thing, too, that, that is best handled by Jesus, who has an objective standard that none of us has. An objective standard. See, now for this stick, you know, I don't know where we got this and where we bought it from, but it might be a little off. You know, I'm, I'm sure somewhere in Greenwich, England, there's a little standard for measure for the yard that is the standard that everything is, you know, this is what, how the companies, they go find out exactly what a yard is or whatever and they, they, you know, compare it. So, I mean, this might be off. I know it's got some metal tips on here, but, you know, it may have been a millimeter off or something like that. But the same way, we, we come up with our standards and they're just not objective. We have to have something that is from the outside. And you know what? The Lord has that. He has that objective standard. And so we need to leave that kind of final judgment, that kind of judgment, that, that condemning judgment, that, that's in his hands. It's not in our hands. So since we can't do it properly, we shouldn't do it at all. And uh, now, um, you know, if you really, 
if you really want to help others, you know, if your concern and your heart is, well, I do want to help people to align themselves with Christ, you know, because Jesus is the standard, you know. I mean, we're trying to align our lives to him as Christ followers. We're trying to look like him. So, you know, I understand the hearts of some people and that, that, you know, you want to help others to align their lives with Christ. But really, where we got to start with is ourselves. Always got to start with yourself. You know, you can't be looking at the blemishes and faults and little frailties of others. You got to look at yourself and make sure that your own spirit isn't, isn't fooling yourself, you know? And we got to admit the truth about ourselves. We have to judge ourselves. Now, some people go to the other extreme. They go to the other extreme. They've been so careful to avoid the, the terrible danger of judging in a condemning way that they've gone to the extreme of exercising no discernment, no judgment whatsoever. And again, Jesus you know, isn't saying don't be discriminating in, in being able to make decisions, but he's saying not to condemn and make a final pronouncement on a person. So right after telling us about the log in our eye, he says, don't give what's sacred to dogs. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, it's more than likely that Jesus is referring to the truth. Other parts in the Bible talking about truth and it's holy, uh, comparison to a jewel or to pearls, and, and which is the truth is holy, which uh, uh, is, is, is a thing that is handled in, uh, with respect and with awe. So I can only touch on this a little very briefly. So I'll just use the example of Jesus and the difference between his encounter with Pilate and his encounter with Herod right before he was crucified. And it's in Luke chapter 23. When Jesus was questioned by Pilate, the Lord answered him. He gave him an answer. When he was questioned by Herod, who was a Jew and should have known better, but was kind of had this morbid curiosity, he was kind of looking for a miracle or some sort of sign or wonder, uh, Jesus said nothing to Herod. He wouldn't give him the time of day. So there was kind of this difference. It was the same situation dealing with the truth where Jesus was being asked, who he was. Well, to Pilate, he gives an answer. To Herod, he says nothing. So, same situation, he responds differently. You see, you don't handle a Pilate the same way you handle a Herod. You got to see people are different, and you got to be sensitive to that. You know, the effect of, upon s- the, the nature of man, sin's nature upon man, is that it gives them an antagonism to the truth. And so, and that's all I can say uh, for the moment about that portion of scripture. Um, And you can uh, delve into that on your own if you like. But at this point in Jesus' sermon, and especially after uh, the words about a measure we use will be used against us, I think there's a real revealing effect upon many people. And the revealing effect is this. All of a sudden, we see how needy we are for grace and for mercy. I mean, when you talk about that little measuring stick thing, man, you know, we've all done some measuring in our heads to other people. And you go, man, God might apply that to me. Oh. And you realize, I'm in, I'm in need of grace just as much as anybody else. You know, we're humbled and we start feeling helpless. I mean, how can I live? How can I live these words that Jesus describes of what a Christ follower is to be in the Sermon on the Mount. How am I to live that out? How can anybody, you know, how can anybody come to such a vision and, and a description and, and a standard of what he speaks here? You know, we need help, help and grace, seriously. I mean, but where can we get it? Well, Jesus answers. Next thing that he teaches here. 
He says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be open. We all feel unworthy. We all feel undone when we stand face to face with Jesus and his words and what we see here in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we should feel. That, that's, in fact, that's the appropriate thing to feel. If you still feel proud and like you've got it all together when you're standing before Jesus and his words, then that's, that's trouble. But if you're feeling unworthy and undone, that's, that's good. That's good. That's where we should be. Because what happens when we get in that place? Well, we begin to ask. When we're confronted and we're crushed with Jesus' words and we realize our helplessness and our desperate need of grace, the answer and for the supply of that grace is, is in Him. We all hate to feel like we're poor, like we're paupers, to feel helpless. We don't, we don't like that. But the first two essentials of salvation are, are the consciousness of our need and, and the consciousness of the riches of the grace that are in Christ Jesus. If we don't recognize those things, we're in trouble. It's, it's the person who's down and out who begins to ask. Are we too proud to ask? Do we need to be a little more needy? I hope God doesn't have to make us more needy. I hope we could come to that without being stripped of everything. But sometimes I guess that's what it takes. Now, if you're somebody who struggles with guilt before God, I really want you to listen to this. I really want you to listen to this. You know what? To emphasize what he was saying about asking for what we need, Jesus gives the picture of an earthly father. The earthly father, even with his old sinful nature, you know, still wants to do stupid things, knows how to give good gifts to his child. And Jesus asks, if an earthly father does so much, how much more so God? Now I know that not everybody here grew up with a great earthly dad. Some of you may have grown up with an abusive dad. But I want you to know, your heavenly father is not like that. And I think you know that. I think you know that. But I want you to know that even if you had the greatest earthly dad, your heavenly father is even better. And he's good. And he cares for you. Jesus asked, if an earthly father does so much, how much more so God? You know, you've, you've believed in Christ and you've received him. And so you've, you've received a new nature in you that makes you God's child. Because God is your father, he'll never give you anything that is evil. He'll never make a mistake in what he gives you. Our mistake is in thinking that God is against us when something unpleasant happens to us. That's our mistake. That's our mistake. But God is our Father, and our Father gives us good things. You know, it's, it's really, you know, if you look through the whole Bible, it's the whole theme of the Bible. God gives good things to those who ask. So are we asking? That's all we need to do. Very simple. Some people don't get it. They don't get that simple ask. So, what are some of these good things that the Father gives to us? Well, the biggest one, and Jesus answers this in Luke 11. He says where he teaches, uh, he teaches this portion of the Sermon on the Mount elsewhere with another crowd. And he says, if then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And, uh, and, and in giving us the Holy Spirit, he gives us everything. He gives us everything. 
everything we need, every grace, every gift. There's another portion of scripture that says his divine power or his spirit gives us everything we need for life and godliness and for participating in the divine nature. You know what that participating in the divine nature means? Participating in this vision we've been talking about that Jesus gives, that he wants us to be and to live, to participate in that. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. And it also helps us to escape the corruption of this world. It's a great gift. He gives good gifts and he wants to give that to us. And, and now we come into the Sermon on the Mount, the summation of Jesus' teaching in his sermon. And with this verse, is, uh, it's become known uh, to most of the world as the golden rule. And it's this, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, you do so for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Very simple. Very simple thing. And, and, and it seems to make sense to a lot of people. The therefore, at the beginning of the statement, therefore, uh, whatever you want others to do for you, do for them, uh, lets us know that this statement is connected to the previous things that he says. So it's not detached from what has just gone on before. You know, uh, the therefore in this matter of judgment, in this whole matter of your relationship to other people, let this be the rule. Do to others as you would want them to do to you. Jesus, Jesus, he's summing up the whole love your neighbor as yourself in this, in this statement right here. And if you ever have trouble knowing how you're supposed to relate with other people and deal with others, this is where you start, folks. This is where we start. The interesting thing in this and, and with this command is that it starts with a right look of the self. And we've talked about in the past in, in the Sermon on the Mount this, how it's such a huge confrontation with the self and what we do with ourself. But here... It starts with a look at the self, kind of knowing that there's certain things that we like, certain things that, that are nice to us. And in this command, you don't start with the other person, but by asking yourself, you ask, what, what is it that I like? What are the things that please me? What are the things that help me, help me and encourage me? Then, then you ask yourself, what are the things I dislike? What are the things that, that upset me and bring out the worst in me? You know, what are the things that, that are hateful and discouraging? And after you make your, your list, uh, the Lord then has us face things by, by putting ourselves in the other person's position. See, the other person is exactly I am, as I am in all these matters. You know, I don't like, or you don't like unkind things said about you. Well, don't say them about others. You don't like people who are difficult and make your life difficult, to, difficult and put you on the edge? Then, in the same way, don't be that kind of person to other people. You know, it's, it's as simple as that, according to Jesus. And it does seem really simple. I mean, it seems like we should be able to, to hold this standard up and merely tell people, hey, you know what you'd like done to yourself? Do that for others. And it seems like if, if everybody would get that, that would just solve all the world's problems, wouldn't you think? I mean, you know, between individuals, between families, between communities, between nations. I mean, it, it'd just be all done and over with. I mean, there'd be peace everywhere, wouldn't it? You'd think so. I think it'd be really simple, right? That's not. It's not happened. In fact, in the 1950s, there were a bunch. There's a whole lot of people that were throwing around the golden rule. Uh, even people who are secular humanists, they're prancing around the earth and saying, "Hey, do it to others, you know, as you'd have them do to you." And and they're telling people who are in India and China, they're go around and spreading this, and and nothing changed. Nothing happened. Why? Well, it's not nearly enough to just merely tell people about the golden rule 
It's not going to change things. It's not going to change things to educate people with, oh, just do to others that what you'd like done to you. Oh, now I'm enlightened. Everything will change. It's, it's not that simple. See, the problem is a little deeper than that. See, look at how Jesus put it. At the end of it, he, he throws in, this sums up the law and the prophets. Why does he throw that in? I mean, that's what the secular humanists left out. I mean, they didn't even believe Jesus was who he said he was, and they were going around saying this. But why does Jesus throw this in? This sums up the law and the prophets. Most of our problems come from us not understanding the meaning of God's law. You know, Jesus just spent the whole first part of the Sermon on the Mount saying that we, we miss it. We, we, don't, we forget the heart and the spirit of the law. We live by the letter, but then we forget the heart and the spirit. So why does the law tell us not to kill, not to steal, not to commit adultery? Why? Is it, so, is it simply so that we'll just uphold these things as rules and regulations? That like some, some, some sort of congressional law that controls us and keeps us in line? No. That's not it. That's not the reason behind it. The whole purpose and the real spirit behind the law is this. That we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're to love one another. The law, in other words, is to help us to see that we need to be interested in our neighbor. To love them and to be concerned about their happiness and their needs. The object of the law is to bring us to that point. Isn't that wild? So why do people forget the golden rule? Why do they not keep it? Or why do they not live their lives in this way? Why are there troubles between nations, families, communities, and individuals? Why don't we just simply do this? Well, the statement of the gospel is that it's the false, the curse, it's the sin of mankind. Mankind doesn't want to put the golden rule into practice because there's something within us that hates the law and doesn't want it. I know that's strong language. You know, if somebody said, well, I, I think you hate the word of God. It's like, no, no, I don't. I don't do that. And, but, you know, you can talk, uh, talk about the golden rule with people who are not Christ followers. And you can talk about it in an abstract way. And, man, that's great. I agree with it. Man, that's a great principle. But as soon as you apply it to them in their lives, or as soon as you connect God to it, then it's like, they don't like it. It's like, eh, forget that. You can test that out. That's true. Mankind dislikes the law of God because the law is an expression of God's will. The law is an expression of his person. It's an expression of his character. The law is a reflection of who God is. Mankind dislikes the law because they dislike God. I know that's strong too. I know there's folks that would say, no, man, I, I don't not like God. I don't hate God. Well, let me boil it down just a little more before you maybe write that off and say, no, I, I don't hate God. The whole thing can be, can be brought down to this idea of humility that we've been talking about this year. We've been talking about walking humbly with our God, which is one of the things that he desires. And, be, and, and then that humility can be brought down to another simple word, and it's self. To love your neighbor as yourself is difficult because mankind loves themselves in such a wrong way. Mankind doesn't do to others what, what he or she would want others to do to them because the whole time they're only thinking about themselves. They never transfer thought off themselves onto their neighbor. The result of, of the sin of sin and the fall is that mankind is entirely self-centered. 
That's our problem. He thinks of no one but himself. And that's why mankind dislikes God and his law. Mankind dislikes God because God is someone who interferes with this self-centeredness and independence. He messes that up. He messes that up and says, no, I don't want you at the center of your life. I want me at the center of your life. And people don't like that. And that's why people dislike God and dislike his law. It's because it's getting self out of the way. That when you boil it all down, that's what it comes down to, folks. It really does. Mankind likes to think of themselves as completely autonomous. But here is someone who challenges that. And mankind by nature dislikes them. When self is in the forefront, the golden rule, loving your neighbor, can never be carried out. In a dispute, you know, uh, somebody's, one side's going to say, well, I'm entitled to have this. And then the other side says, well, she has more, so I'm going to have less. And so they're going to continue to argue because they both have their eyes on themselves. They're only thinking about themselves. So how does anyone put into practice the golden rule? The answer is the gospel. It is that you start with the God. You start with God. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. That's the greatest thing that we can do in this life. And the second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself. But do you notice the order? You don't start with loving your neighbor. You start with God. You got to start there. And relationships in this world will never be right, whether between individuals, between marriages, between families, groups, or nations, until we all start with God. You cannot love your neighbor as yourself until you love God. And that's the truth. And that's why our world is still a mess. You'll never see yourself or your neighbor in the right way until you've seen both in the sight of God. We've got to get his vision. When you start with God, we see who he is and who we are before him. Sinners. I know that's, that's not a word that people like to use. But when you see yourself as a sinner, you forget you ever had a right. You become poor in spirit. We recognize we're, we're spiritually poor, unclean before God, that we're needy. The knowledge of God humbles us to the dust. And in that position, you don't think about your rights and your dignity. That all goes out the window. You, you have no need to protect yourself when you're poor in spirit. And there's this unworthiness that envelops you. And it's not the kind of unworthiness that comes from a, a, a bad self-image. It's the unworthiness of looking at God and knowing that he's holy and good and right. And that his standard is right and true. And that you've been measuring yourself to something all wrong. Instead, you should have been measuring yourself to Jesus. Because he's God's standard. And at the same time that you see yourself and you recognize this need. That you need grace. And there's this unworthiness that envelops you. At the same time, you begin to see others like yourself. That we're all victims of Satan and sin. We're all dupes of the, of the God of this world who's blinded us and faked us out. We're all fellow creatures that are under God's accountability, under his judgment. And if we're all to be measured by his standard of Jesus, wow, we're all in a terrible predicament. We're all in danger. And what that means is we're all needy. 
We all need grace. We all need mercy. You know what? And that's okay. That's right where we need to be. That's right where we need to be. And we can do nothing. Nothing at that point, but just run to Jesus. Just run to him. To enjoy his grace and forgiveness together. That's the only way that we're going to be able to do unto others as we'd have them do to us. The next uh, moment here, the guys, they're going to come out. They're going to be playing a song. And uh, we're not going to do communion right now. Uh, We're just going to put that off just a little bit. But what we're going to do right now is um, there's this idea about self and this self on the throne. And I know that sometimes, you know, as, as a Christ follower, you know, there's that moment where you said, Jesus, I want you to be the sinner. I want you to rule. And, and he's on the throne of your heart. But then there's, you got these leftovers. You know, you're, you're, the old nature is gone, but you got your flesh, you got your mind that was trained in the old ways. And that, that selfishness starts creeping in again. And all of a sudden you realize, man, you're starting to push Jesus off the throne of your heart. And what he really desires of us is that, that we get off the throne and that he's there. And, and there's this idea in Romans 12 too, where it talks about offering ourselves as a living sacrifice. You see, back in the old days, they made a sacrifice of an animal for someone's sin. But God said no more of that because Jesus was the final sacrifice for our sins. And God doesn't want dead sacrifices anymore. He wants living sacrifices. And so we... We, we're the ones who are to climb up on this altar and present ourselves before God. And it's not just a one-time thing or a one-time kind of prayer that you do. But it's the kind of prayer that you say, Lord, here's my heart. I want to give it to you. And I want you to be ruling from it. I want you to be a sinner, not on the periphery of my life. And God, here's my mind, my intellect, and my will, and I give it to you. I want my mind to be used for you. And here are my hands. Let me use my hands for you today to work for you, to sweat for you. Lord, here's my feet. Take me where you will. Lord, here's my eyes. Help me to see what you see. Here's my ears. Help me to hear the things that you hear. Lord, here's my mouth. Help me to use it for you. And may your praise always be on my tongue. And that's the kind of prayer, an offer, a sacrifice to God that we need to offer. And we need to stop putting ourself on the altar and let Christ be there, be the center of our lives. So, in the next moment, I, I just want us to have a moment to say, God, I'm sorry. I've had myself in the center instead of you. And to say, Lord, forgive me. And I, I don't want that anymore. I want you to be in the center. And, and this might be a time where you kind of want to express this outwardly. It may not be just something that you just want to do right there in your seat, and just, you know, which you can do. You can do in your seat and God, you know, talk to him and, and straighten that thing out. But I, I just want to say right here, Right, and right here, there's, there's this little space right here. And you come down and just say, God, my life is on the altar. And I want myself out of the way. I want you there. And, and you get down right here on your knees. And, and don't worry about this. Christ followers do this all the time. They get on their knees. It's a sign of humility. And, and really, Jesus talked about that whole eye of the needle. Uh, a rich man cannot get through. In which I believe that all of us here in America are rich. Even if you live on the street, you're richer than the poor in India and China. But... but that whole eye of the needle, um, there are a lot of folks that believe that, that the eye of the needle is, is this, uh, there's a gate that go into all the cities and they put up these gates to keep people from uh, invading their cities. And, but the traders would come through with their camels bringing all the spices and stuff and they would have the big gate where they open up the caravan and let the camels come through with all the stuff. 
But when there was times of war, there was danger, they had this smaller door that was about waist high and they called it the eye of the needle. And it was in the gate and it was a smaller door. They would open up that door and no camel could, could fit through that. But a man could fit through that. If he got off his camel, if he let, got off and went away from his possessions and he got down on his knees and went through that door. See, being on our knees isn't such a bad thing. And sometimes we need to do that. So the guys are going to play. And this is just a moment for us. Uh, and if you want to express that outwardly to God, you can. If not, that's okay. I understand if you've got bad knees or whatever, you, know, you can stay in your seat. But go ahead, guys. This is a time between us and God.